to your earlier point, I believe that, you know, we're all taught very differently. You know, when we come out of school and we, we start in business, we believe, you know, that our role is to, you know, get things right, to be confident, to be strong, you know, vulnerability, there isn't really something, you know, for a person, you know, my journey has started in leadership right out of college, probably had no right being in a leader right out of college, didn't, didn't even know who I was, never mind. It's very easy to be compassionate. Um, it's also very easy to be objective, but putting those both together at the same time. Yeah. Now you're talking about leadership and, uh, it, it takes, um, a leap of faith to be able to leverage your relationship in a way. Um, that you're promoting integrity and honesty and you're giving people the real feedback that they need to move forward. And, um, yeah, it's a lot about what's underneath the way that I lead today. I think, you know, through COVID that, that changed and mental health became, you know, the focus as people grew, you know, depressed and isolated, um, you know, feeling of hopelessness and, um, I mean, if we were being honest, you know, there was a moment where we didn't know how the world would or if the world would go back to, um, you know, any, um, representation of what we'd experience, you know, through our lives. Dear listeners, this show is brought to you by Freeletics. Building a fitness routine took my life to a new level, energy, confidence, health, feeling good about my body, staying young and agile. But most of us find it enormously difficult to build such a routine. The motivation is lacking, the workouts feel bad, the plan doesn't adapt, the success doesn't materialize. But it is possible to be healthy, fit, and enjoy your life. Because I certainly did not want to be held hostage to a fitness routine or feel that I am somehow missing out on life just to be fit. For those willing to invest a few minutes of their day to develop a determined lifelong workout routine, Freeletics offers a simple lifestyle, personalized workout plans, and data-driven insights to maximize your likelihood of success while having fun. Start now at freeletics.com. Also, this show is sponsored by Stadia. The scientifically proven benefits of training with weights are indisputable. For the major physiological systems in your body, such as muscle size, strength, athletic performance, functional capacity, also for the increase in bone density and the improvements in cardiovascular, cognitive, and psychological health. Working out with weights is almost a magic bullet. And now you can have all of these benefits at home. Stadium offers you high quality, stylish weight training equipment that you will love to have lying around your place. Get it at stadium.com. Thank you for supporting the show and checking out our sponsors. And now let's start with the conversation. Welcome to This One Life. Today on the show, Carl Sunft. Carl is the CEO of 24 Hour Fitness, which is a fitness center chain with almost 300 clubs, more than 7,000 employees, and about 2 million members. Carl, it's great to have you on the show. 
It's great to be here. Thank you. Many leaders often cite a somewhat pivotal moment or turning point in their lives that significantly influenced their trajectory. Can you share your journey as an overview? And has there been such a pivotal moment in your life? Yeah, I appreciate the question. I think you know, I've been in leadership for you know, over 30 years. And, you know, there's always a moment in time where somebody actually spends time with you and talks to you about, you know, what's possible in your career. And in that moment, it's, uh, it really is an act of, uh, compassion and kindness and, and, you know, genuine interest from that individual. And that's exactly what happened with me. You know, I had, I had reached the level of district manager. Um, I was living in San Diego, uh, California, and I thought, you know, what better than to be a district manager in San Diego? And, and I really thought that, you know, that's where my career was going to stop. And uh, one of my mentors, a general gentleman by the name of Phil, you know, started talking to me about what was possible in my career, what he saw me being able to do, how he thought I could continue to grow and add value. Um, I remember like it was yesterday, we were at a, uh, a little Mexican restaurant called on the border by one of our, um, stores and he, he took the time and he showed the interest and he really uh, was able to have me think about what the next years could look like and be different. And, uh, I'm forever grateful for that. It is so valuable if somebody opens up your perspective to their view of what potential lies within you and what, what, what you can achieve because at least when I talk about myself, um, if you have never heard that from somebody else, or if um, you're, you're you're still to a certain ex extent unexperienced at, for example, top leadership, it's very daunting to think about these people and all and and imagine that you could achieve something similar like 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 that or even better. Yeah, absolutely, and it you know it's it's the type of off what I would call off cycle conversation that really matters. You know, which this was, you know, where people talk to you during your performance review or while they're hiring you. You know, there's a certain structure associated with that, which you know the formality really um, keeps you from understanding you know the true passion and the true authenticity underneath you know the message. So. There's something about off cycle. We're here to talk about nothing else other than you. Um, you know, how we can continue to, you know, mentor and develop you. And, you know, like I said, you know, the art of the fossil, it was absolutely great. And, you know, I've tried to pay that forward in my career and, um, you know, being as authentic as I can in leadership. And, um, you know, it's a combination in my point of view of both compassion and objectivity. I think it's, it's very easy to be compassionate. Um, it's also very easy to be objective, but putting those both together at the same time, yeah, now you're talking about leadership and, uh, it, it takes, um, a leap of faith to be able to leverage your relationship in a way, um, that you're promoting integrity and honesty and you're giving people the real feedback that they need to move forward. And, um, yeah, it's a lot about what's underneath the way that I lead today. It's, it's an, it's incredibly difficult to do what you have explained uh, i would assume being honest with people but delivering it in a way or coming from a perspective that 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 is somewhat rooted in in, in kindness uh how have you learned that or maybe to to take that question to a bit of a broader level 
how do you define good leadership for you? What type of leadership do you want to see at 24 Hour Fitness? What were the main influences that shaped your perspective towards leadership? Because, you know, without extending that question too much, I find that very often the the image of leadership when you see bosses in TV uh, is typically a very negative one, you know, one that yeah, you should not um, become. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, there, it's a bit stoic of a figure who, you know, speaks with a very authoritarian tone and, uh, I don't know, professions, you know, some level of uh, rhetoric, I suppose. But I think that, you know, I, um, you know, first and foremost believe that, you know, I'm 53 years old. And, and when I look back at my career, my career could have gone a lot of different ways. It could have been um, as successful as I've been able to and you've been fortunate enough to be able to be, or it could have been, you know, unsuccessful. So, you know, I don't believe that there's this big, you know, difference between leaders who have success and leaders who don't have success. I think that the environment matters a lot. Context matters a lot. You know, were people, you know, as I spoke to earlier, you know, willing to spend time with you and develop you and give you, you know, some of the perspective thoughts, you know, um, skills, proficiencies that are needed, et cetera. So, you know, it first starts with a reflection and appreciation of, um, humility and thankfulness for all that I've been able to uh, do for, you know, not only business for my family, you know, my wife, my three daughters, you know, those things matter to me, um, very, very much. Um, so if you kind of start from a perspective of it's a full life and everyone has a full life and, you know, leadership and those in leadership aren't very different from those who are in roles of individual contribution, then, you know, being um, compassionate and being objective and being willing to give people the feedback to offer them the same opportunity that you had is actually quite easy to do. How do you, within your leadership, how do you think about this topic of being um, vulnerable towards, towards your people? How does that fit in? Um, where is it too much? Uh, it took, it took a lot, you know, um, because, you know, to your earlier point, I believe that, you know, we're all taught very differently, you know, when we come out of school and we, we start in business, we believe, you know, that our role is to, you know, get things right, to be competent, to be strong, you know, vulnerability, there isn't really something, you know, per person, you know, my journey, I started in leadership right out of college probably had no right being in a leader right out of college, didn't, didn't even know who I was, never mind, had the right to be in a position to, you know, lead others. But I think that as time goes on and life goes on, um, you know, um, you become, you know, far more, or at least I became far more comfortable, willing to be vulnerable because, you know, maybe in your early twenties, you think you're going to make it through life undefeated, but somewhere along the line, you realize that you're going to get scarred up, scuffed up. Um, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to, you know, you're going to learn as much through failures you do success. So, you know, I'd love to say that it was just something I was able to learn, but I think there's an experience tale associated um, with vulnerability that actually allowed me to get clear about what I'm really good at, get clear about what my opportunities are, and then 
set up a team in a way that I can be my whole self and they can be their whole self and we can complement one another. It it seems that that's also really a way to drive um, a healthy failure uh, culture in the company. I mean, it, it's always about the dosage because obviously you cannot just make mistakes and you cannot just be um, vulnerable in a sense because you made one mistake after the other. But this ability for a leader to stand somewhere and and say, I messed up or that was something I got wrong or I don't know, um, next to this, this failure culture is also, at least in me, if I hear that from somebody else, my trust level goes immediately up because I can trust all the messages and all the statements and everything that is coming from management or from that leader much more if that person is also open about the, um, I don't want to even call it like that, but for lack of a better word, you know, the negatives or, or the mistakes. Yeah, exactly right. Well, first of all, everyone already knows. So, um, you know, yeah. if you've made mistakes, chances are the crowd is well aware of it, um, you know, before maybe you've even had that realization moment. So, I think that being authentic, um, you know, just to your point, validates that that's the type of person that you want to engage with. I love the word that you use, dosage. It, it matters a lot. You know, you can't can't fail all the time to be successful, but you do need to set up an environment where people know what it is that you value and how it is that they are to participate. So, you know, I often actually, you know, kind of kindle that culture and environment early by saying things of, because I've been in every room, you know, I didn't, I didn't come out of college and start as a CEO. I grew up through companies. I had roles that I loved and roles that I hated and roles where, you know, I, um, I learned, succeeded, failed, et cetera. But in this role, it's about setting an environment where people understand what you're looking for. So, you know, I'll often say things like, I know what you're thinking, you're thinking, he doesn't ask anything of me. I won't say anything. And I just need to get out of this meeting without saying anything stupid. And in most cases, people will laugh. And then you can say that I'd rather you actually say something that I don't agree with than not say anything at all. I value the person who's willing to say something versus the person that doesn't say anything, one over the other. So you can kind of context and criteria for people to say, well, now I understand um, you know, what these rules of engagement look like. And, um, I'm a big fan also of, you know, what I call, you know, listening to people versus hearing it's, it's, um, it's easy, um, to listen. It's difficult to hear, you know, um, don't think of every individual word choice, you know, don't take offense or find something with Jordan, get underneath what it is that the person's actually trying to articulate and then hear them as opposed to you know, do what too many leaders do, which is vetoing people out of the dialogue because they got the nomenclature wrong. You know, we've got this nomenclature, you don't, you said the wrong, the, the wrong word. So you're out as opposed to, I actually open my heart and my mind to what it is that you're trying to say and see if there's something that I can learn from you. I love the combination of, you know, being empathetic and putting yourself in their shoes and, and, and basically phrasing out what, what they might think um I, I i know i know this I, i've seen that as an example in some type of um negotiation uh, hostage negotiation um i'm serious where basically you 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 build report and show and show that you can think yourself into the shoes and and you know in a combination with trying to listen as a leader i would assume that many 
people, um, especially coming from different organizations, are not used to that. So I can see how that works. You had briefly mentioned you had also been in roles that you didn't like and so on. What were the commonalities between roles that you that you hated and bosses that you hated? Yeah, I think that, I mean, I think when, when I look back at my career and I, I find um, places where I felt like, um, you know, I could, I could just say what was on my mind, take the time in a perfect way to be heard versus feeling as though, and I'm sure you've been in these conversations as well, where the moment you start talking, you feel like you have to race through your words because you don't know how much air you have. You know, how much time is it before I get shut down? How much time is it before, you know, we're done talking about that topic? So I think where I do my best and was able to do my best is where I felt like I could be my full self personally, and it brought out the best in me professionally. In, like, when it comes to your overall sense of leadership and the experience that you have made so far, um, taking big decisions. I mean, obviously that's a big part of that, but um, taking big decisions. I feel that often a challenge that I hear is that when it comes to these decisions, even if you try to explain them within the organization, there is obviously a big level of information asymmetry between yourself and, you know, at least the broader part of the organization. So um, that's a reason why um, decisions can be controversial. It can also be controversial that, you know, a decision is a very close one. It's, you know, 52 to 48. And 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 so there would have been a very good reason for also taking the other side of the decision. Also, that can be controversial because if almost half of the organization thinks, you know, it should have been the other ones. Um, so it, it, can you just describe a moment where you took a decision, um, even if it wasn't a popular one, an easy one, um, but felt proud about that and, and thought it was the right decision to do despite that backslash? Proud is an interesting word in, in that frame. I think that, um, you know, through COVID, through, you know, shutdowns, through, you know, downsizing and, you know, what we experienced all over the world, of you know, um, sprints and, and, and stops as it related to, you know, the business you know, start, stops, we open, we close, you know, there was unfortunately a lot of reductions that we made and reductions in force that we made, you know, through that process. And they were very difficult because it's a very uh, tight knit culture, a 24 hour fitness. It's, um, you know, as you know, in the fitness industry, it is, it is a passion play for many. Um, so you got not only like-minded individuals, but a lot of, you know, light lifestyles, you know, they work out together, they, you know, um, you know, spend time together, et cetera. So those are very difficult decisions to make. And, um, it was hard for people to, um, not only understand what we were doing episodically in the moment, but then how that actually presented a future as we went forward, I found myself in those moments um, doing a couple of things, or at least attempting to do a couple of things, albeit not perfect. One is, is to be ultimately human and talk about um, how difficult it was and, and how I knew that there were people 
involved that had contributed to the company and who we cared about. And then okay. talk about why the decisions, albeit unpainful, needed to be made in the moment and how that unlocked the future for us as we moved forward. It took um, an incredible amount of leadership to find our way through that. And in my belief, that's not when you, it's not ultimately when you make that decision and explain that decision. It's, it's not when people decide if they believe you or not. They actually decide whether they believe in you before that moment. You actually had to have enough credibility, relationship, and authenticity to when you, when you got to that moment, people said, we've spent enough time with that leader and we believe in that leader. So it's kind of a circuitous way of answering the question, but succinctly what I'm trying to articulate is that you don't actually make a decision and explain that decision and win or lose. You probably won or lost as a leader before that and the type of engagement and culture and um, environment that you've been able to create or you haven't been able to create as a leader. It's too late when you're making a decision. That, that, that's a... Great example. I just named the concept that you mentioned, the bank account of trust, where yeah, you have like to that. fill that bank account somewhat beforehand because when it comes to such a difficult moment, and there are, I don't know whether there is a more difficult moment where the interests of individuals clash more, you know, in an even more, in a, in a more extreme way um, with the interest of, of, of the, the whole company and, and, and the whole team, then in a situation where you have to reduce, um, your, your workforce. So the bank account of trust, uh, has to be filled before, um, in, like in that, that situation, what was it equally challenging to come up with a decision of what you need to do versus, um, you know, how you execute about that or, um, was that you know, it could have also been the case where hey that we need to do that is absolutely clear but how can we do that in the in the best possible way how can we choose the right people how can we make it as as respectful as possible i think in most cases the mechanics of the easy part you know i mean not to understate them there's a lot of professionals you know human resources, legal, et cetera, around you that are telling you, you know, the things that are necessary components of the mechanics of how you get through that process. You know, the, 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 um, the complexity in, in my point of view is, is in the intangibles, you know, in the moments, um, in, in when you need to pivot and how do you pivot as a leader? So, you know, just you know, recently ran into a leader whose, whose wife worked with us and unfortunately was a part of a reduction in force, right? So probably every book tells you, you know, that those are two different employees and address one employee as one employee and the other one is the other one and keep it separate and, you know, maintain your objectivity. But I mean, you know, that's his wife and that's someone you know and he knows you know and, you know, what human wouldn't stop and say, you know, that that was incredibly different, difficult, and that you hope she is well. And, you know, please pass on, um, you know, um, the fact that I said hello and wish her nothing but success, which is probably the opposite of what any book would tell you to do in the moment. But I feel like 
is what's expected of you in the moment because that employee is looking at you thinking like, do you even know who I am? Do you know who she is? Have you made the connection? And do you care? So I, I just believe that, um, you know, this, this, you know, authentic component isn't just a, you know, a buzzword or a phrase. It, it really comes down to, you know, what do you value as a person? It seems that a lot of what you say uh, includes that within that topic of leadership, you really have to care about the the individual, the human that stands b before you. Um, and if that person gets that feeling, many other things fall into place. Obviously, there's still a lot more to leadership, but that's a very, it, yeah, it, it seems this is really something that you underline. It, because at the end of the day, it's the only way to unlock performance. So, you know, my, my belief isn't just, you know, be nice to everyone and that makes you a great leader. There's still, there's still a whole, you know, other set of, you know, assets to the job when it comes to KPIs and, you know, your ability to drive performance, drive growth, you know, et cetera. But, but once you create a culture where people are engaged, and these aren't my words, you know, there's, you know, there's great companies like Gallup and engagement services, um, um, surveys that will show it to be true, which is once you drive engagements and you unlock performance because people give you discretionary effort that ultimately isn't required. So, you know, there's a business side to it as well, which is that, you know, you are an authentic leader who drives um, an environment that unlocks human potential and drives performance. But I just don't think you can, you can fake that. I think that if you try to fake that, um, you'll be less than successful. Is there some way to to teach people this? Is there is there also some you know way at twenty five hour fitness how that's been done? Because it just feels that so many people and and leaders struggle with that balance between um and we're gonna oversimplify here extremely, but being um, too nice and people focused, where you all you know try to have a kumbaya, you know yeah. team feeling and that's it versus versus and and versus extremely performance focused and then you know the other dimension where you either focus just on the pure business topics and leave all the relationships and 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 these kind of things out of the equation versus exactly the uh, exactly the opposite so it's just a, a, a very complex um field where hitting the right balance seems to be crucial and a lot of people struggle with that is that just something yeah, that including me you know i've struggled with it you know at moments in my career i think i think what's outstanding about 24-hour fitness is you know we've assembled a team um people who have um you know depth in their leadership experience and they see you know different kind of scenarios you know where you know, albeit too light, loose or too tight or too focused on relationship or too focused on, on business. And I think all that experience comes to play, you know, I don't know, you know, I wish there was a way it could be taught in some quickly, you know, it probably, you know, mean that we all had better environments everywhere that we went. But I think in my, in my experience, it's just, um, it's just a lot of learning, uh, a lot of adjusting, a lot of um, successes, you know, some failures, feedback, 
you know, I, I'd, I'd say probably the, the underlying theme as I, you know, talk it through aloud is probably feedback. You know, I've got more, you know, 360 feedback, you know, um, engagement surveys, you know, leadership coaching. Heck, I got a wordle about, you know, my leadership, about how people, you know, think I show up both positively and opportunistically. So I think all that feedback shapes you as well. You know, sometimes you're really proud of your feedback. Sometimes you're not. And I think that, you know, those are, those are things that help shape you as well. How successful are you in really getting the, the juicy feedback from your employees? You know, you always probably think you're better at it than you really are. Um, because you, um, you probably need, you know, start with, you know, surface level feedback, but I think that what I've tried to do is surround myself with people who, um, tell me the truth, tell me the things that, um, I don't want to hear, tell me, um, you know, the real honest feedback about, um, you know, how I showed up and how I can improve, um, you know, it kind of goes back to where I started, you know, you know, leadership is, is taught in a very different way. It's taught, you know, be stoic and, and, you know, be matter of fact, and then everyone around you, you know, tells you how fantastic, you know, you did in your presentation and then results don't move and engagement doesn't move. You're like, what happened? So you, you got to create a leadership team that actually is willing to mix it up and, um, and be honest. And, you know, that's not, that's not done overnight. But you've know, done well. You can you can really get to where you need to be. It is so difficult to judge whether people really tell you the truth because what you don't know, you don't know, and you're running a much larger organization. What I recently started to ask was, tell me one thing where I think I'm great, but I'm not, and 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 really don't let people off the hook until they answer the question. That was were some uh, almost painful revelations. I like that. I. I... I'll keep that one. I think that's, it's a really good way of looking at it because it forces people to find the exception. So I think it's, it's really well done. Being a, I had a leader, um, in the early 2000s who helped me think about ways to, and uh, leave room in my perspective to be wrong. So I would say things like, you know, at the time I was running a geography and I would say it was you know, called the territory. So I'd say in my territory, we are doing this. And in my territory, we are doing that. And he expressed to me very publicly that, you know, my territory existed of over, you know, 15,000 employees, millions of customers in, in cities. And I didn't know what I thought I knew. And um, there was things that I was working on in directions I was trying to achieve, but I couldn't be certain because of the amount of scale that I led. I could only be directional and then find ways to either validate or invalidate my direction. And that was very helpful for me because I, um, I was probably, um, well, a matter of fact, a bit arrogant and closed minded to what else might be true. So, uh, that feedback helped me as well. Um, I still want to have time to talk to you about, you know, actually COVID's impact on the future of fitness. But let me uh, allow me to ask one last question, you know, more about your person and and, and leadership. And that is, um, what people often don't see is that 
stress and pressure of being a CEO is very high because ultimately you're responsible. You're responsible first and foremost for the shareholders perspective, but you're responsible for um, all the employees and everyone who gets in touch with the brand. So, you know, two part of question, two side of question, how do you deal with that stress? And what is your reason why you, why you chose to go through that stress and that pressure? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, it's a great question. I saw it in the, in the pre-read and it gave me a chance to think about it. I think there's, there's a few things that I would say. First of all, everyone tells you leading up to it that it's a very stressful role. And you, at least I, that I understood it, but I don't think you really understand it until you sit in the role. And I was told that and I heard that, but I didn't listen. So like when you start thinking about actually being the CEO, it is a very, it is a very different experience than, um, you know, leading up to it, being coached for it, developed for it, et cetera. It can be a very lonely job. Um, you know, ultimately, you know, the most difficult of decisions that we've discussed, um, you are the one that ultimately has to, you know, choose between that 52 and that 48%. And that can be a very, um, lonely moment. I think that, um, you know, what I would suggest or the ways that I tried to you know, cope with that stress is to get really clear on, you know, what is my leadership point of view? So in, in my particular instance, with 24 hour fitness, you know, why does 24 hour fitness, um, and how does 24 hour fitness differentiate itself amongst its competitors? What is my point of view on that? And how are we bringing that to life? So kind of broadens it from you know, the question that's on your desk in the moment, and it leads you down this, you know, really purpose-driven organization of what is it that you are trying to get done and in your time, which is not forever, as the CEO, you know, what is your point of view? And, you know, why is that your point of view? It is that point of view coming to life. So I guess one of the ways that I help navigate through stress is to drive through purpose and um and then you know as you know everybody shows up differently in the gym some people love you know um you know access to community whether it's personal training group training or group exercise uh, i'm a um i'm a loud music guy um so i like my headphones on i like the music loud and I like a good 45 minute workout to myself and, and that helps me, you know, and when I get that in, I can feel both mentally and physically myself different than when I don't. And, um, we all have cycles. Uh, when I get in a, I'm too busy to work out. So I missed another workout cause I'm working in a, what I'd say a downward spiral. Um, that's very difficult, um, personally, professionally and health wise. Um, but I see the opposite. It's true. So I like the investments in, you know, 45 minutes of uh, bands that I might not, you know, say the name of because, you know, they're loud and brash, but uh, I enjoy it when I work out. How, um, how much do you separate your work life from your private life? Do you have some clear boundaries there? Uh, how, how often do you have sleepless nights? Yeah. 
Well, I think it's a joint decision, you know, first of all, you know, um, you know, my wife's name is Jenny and, and, you know, we've been together for 17 years and, and, um, you know, I've got three daughters, you know, 19, 11 and nine. So it's a, it's a family, it's a family deal, you know, like you're either kind of all in or you're not. And, uh, I think that if you try to say, you know, I'm the CEO by day and then I'm not by night and you try to keep them mutually exclusive. I think that's a very difficult way of doing things. I think there's, there's benefits of a role like this. And then there's costs of a role like this. And I think being overt with the family about votes, which, you know, could show off like, you know, dad's got to take a phone call on a weekend or dad's got to take a phone call at dinner. And, you know, this is, this is dad's work that enables us to be able to do the types of things that we like to do. Um, I guess I, you know, as I articulated aloud, it's not a separation as much as it is an understanding of, you know, what we're all doing together at the moment. I'm not sure if that's right or wrong, but that's the, that's the way that we've been able to, um, you know, do it as a family. Last small part to this. Is there anything that is non-negotiable for you when it comes to the, the the topic that we just discussed, you know, somehow managing private life with business life, although I don't want to separate it really as a concept. Yeah, I think that, you know, um, non-negotiable. I think that, um, you know, the negotiating should start when the job, when the job um, is being considered, you know. So I think that, you know, what we've been able to do successfully is say this is, you know, what it will look and sound like. I guess, um, and again, you know, 53 versus 23 when I started, you know, leading, um, I'm better today at understanding that, um, you know, those family moments um, are precious and those family moments are um, in many cases, not able to be replicated. So I think I'm, I'm far more purposeful about that time than I used to be, you know, so I can remember I was, you know, I guess rallies, you know, late twenties and there was a big visit that was coming and it was a vacation that I had scheduled and they were directly in conflict and, um, but I thought I'd never get that visit again and a visit had to happen. So I canceled the vacation. It was a cruise. I didn't have insurance because I didn't have the money to have insurance. And, um, and then the visit never happened and the vacation got scheduled, right? And, and those type experiences would lead me to where I was today, which is, you know, it'd be hard pressed for me to cancel a vacation. I might take a day out of my vacation. I might take a meeting during my vacation. But I think I found kind of moderation and understanding in those instances. So, um, again, I think, you know, life experience matters a lot. So I think that I'm far more, um, um, you know, holistic in the way I look at things as I was before. I think that, you know, maybe the first years in leadership, too much of a focus on um, perfection. And then, you know, as I, you know, grew older, more of a focus on, you know, direction and you still have, um, key focus on achieving a success that you're looking to achieve, but a more holistic approach on how to get it done. Yeah. 
It's an interesting concept. I mean, I can fully understand that also with that experience and with time that passes in your life, the value of time in those experiences just goes 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 up because unfortunately right. life is not uh, indefinite. At the same right. time, it would also be a good question to, um, to if you would not have been that focused on your work, on career, on the perfection, the early years, would you be at the same place right now and where you could take that point? But um, it's a great question. It's it's not your first great question of of this uh, interaction. I think that it's a really smart question. You know, it's um, you know, but then you're into this, you know, aspect of like, does the end justify the means? And it's a it's a it's it's also a difficult dialogue to have. I think that I'm as focused on results as I've ever been. So. You know, the 53-year-old version of myself is as focused on results and also understand that, you know, in a job like my own, you know, it's uh, it's an honor to have that job and there's a responsibility to achieve outcomes in that job. So not, none of that's lost on me. I think just the way by which I approach it is far more holistic as opposed to when I was younger is the way that I would express it. And and also you build the systems in a way that that works for your leadership style. So probably the systems were were different, and now that is the approach that you want to take, and you've built a system around that that works together and interlocks with that system. So that's also probably yeah. part of the the answer. Um, I think that's right. When 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 COVID hit, the the fitness industry saw some pretty dramatic um, shifts and 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 challenges. How um, how has the company's culture transformed post-pandemic? Um, has there been a shift towards embracing more risk or change um, or anything in that direction? It's a great question, and it really gets underneath, you know, the future of 24-hour fitness. I think at the, at the highest of level, you know, if you talk to people pre-COVID, um, you know, people would have said mental health is important, but it probably would have been a far distant second to, you know, physical well-being. I think, you know, through COVID, that that changed and mental health became, you know, the focus as people grew, you know, depressed and isolated, um, you know, feeling of hopelessness. And um, I mean, if we were being honest, you know, there was a moment where we didn't know how the world would or if the world would go back to, um, you know, any um, representation of what we'd experience, you know, through our lives. So I think first and foremost, the, the mental health aspect of the journey um, became very, very critical. And, you know, I mean, there wasn't anything that we didn't reinvent, you know, through COVID, you know, from, you know, pure shutdown, which we didn't only exclusive on, you know, people experience that all around the world um, to when we reopened, you know, we actually, believe it or not, opened an hour clean for a half an hour, open for an hour, um, which is an experience we've almost forgotten about. Um, six foot social distancing and equipment. And, you know, it was an, it was an amazing set of experiences. What, what happened through that is, is the resilience of the culture really came through um, for our brand and, and you really, you know, I didn't, and others didn't understand 
you know, the power of the culture at 24 hour fitness, that's when it really came, you know, true. And, um, you know, for our members, you know, um, our members had to, you know, reset their entire, you know, lives where they work, um, you know, when they work out, how they work out, what's important to them. So the value proposition offerings, you know, grew very, very different through those times. So COVID was a great reset in a lot of ways. I think that it also gave us the gift of perspective um, because, you know, um, pre-COVID, we all probably had moments when it was like, you know, no, I have to go to work today. And and I can tell you when we reopened, it was a jubilation, you know, from our team members and members alike. So there's a there's a life lesson through that as well. Yeah, um, I mean, when you focus, if, if I understood you correctly, when you focus on the bright sides of COVID, there have been many, 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 many very negative um, sides. But if you focus on the bright sides now um, in this business context, not only is there this appreciation suddenly for, hey, this is a great business and an employer that is open and there and running. It is also the, I think the, the, the pride that also the organization likely has built off the resilience that it has shown and the amount of change and innovation that it could drive with very short time. I would imagine that that's pretty culture changing and hopefully people remember that for a very long time. Well, they'll remember because they're still mad at me, you know, how much work it was. You know, we actually had a, uh, a moment where um, you couldn't work out inside, but you can work out outside. And we moved all of our equipment outside. We called it outdoor operations. And, you know, the enormity of these machines and all the weights and, you know, our team members having to, you know, you know, move all that, which was never a job that they signed up for, but their, their willingness and their wantingness to keep the brand alive and, you know, offer some type of service offering to our members was, uh, they would, I'm so appreciative of what they did through that. Um, it's absolutely amazing. And, and, you know, back to your earlier point the decisions, you know, the 52 and the 48, you know, is, is, well, wait a minute, you know, how many people are going to come work out? And, you know, is it worth it? And can you make money doing it? Or are you better off just staying closed? But, you know, my, my deep belief was that our culture needed it as a thread of um, belief that there was a future. And um, at least, you know, opinion of one, um, if we hadn't done it, I think that um, people might've given up. It, it's a it's a great perspective that you shared here that when when you are a leader, especially of an organization of of your size, there is there there is also some magic involved in understanding the organization and the culture, and that not all aspects of a decision can be simply boiled down to a dollar figure in 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 the end some of these things you you feel or you should feel as a leader and you need to go through with them yeah i mean people left the industry there's still you know there's there's still fitness professionals all across the world who um you know did you know a lot of different things you know now because you know they have families and they they worried that the industry wasn't going to come back and um, so I, 
I wanted to, and we wanted to find ways to, you know, validate the industry, you know, through that process. And, um, you know, so we worked hard to keep the team together and find ways to, you know, talk about the future. And, you know, now you see the momentum within the industry, you see the momentum within the company, you see, you know, membership levels, you know, higher than they were pre-pandemic. You see people working out, you see um, communities back together. It's it's inspiring to see what's happening in the clubs. That's a good segue into uh, looking at this whole topic from a consumer uh, perspective. Uh, from 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 your viewpoint, what were or are the 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 deep intrinsic needs now of this modern gym goer post pandemic, and how much you can share? How has or is twenty four hour fitness? Um, creating a strategy uh, around these consumer needs? Yeah, I think that the, the strategy for sure, and I think that the, the demographics of, you know, people in the clubs, um, they haven't changed from the perspective of, you know, there's um, really what's happened is a mix of shit, right? So when you look at, you know, like, you know, the young male, if they ever actually left the gym during COVID, which I'm not sure that they did, you know, people that need, you know, all the plates stacked up, um, you know, heavy weight, big equipment that, you know, can't be replicated. You know, they, they were the first to come back in the clubs and we're, and we're fortunate that they did. If you go all the way over to the other extreme, you know, people that engage in group exercise and a lot of, um, you know, uh, aging communities, um, you know, they really came back for community. They missed their people. You know, they, uh, I remember when I saw the first group exercise, um, classes come back, people stayed after the class just to catch up on life itself. So, so you saw group exercise come back and, and you saw people engage back in their communities. The other question is between those two kind of, you know, goalposts, if you will, then, then to what degree do, do people come back and what offerings are they looking for? And, you know, our strategy is, you know, aside from what I would call many things that have to do with hygiene, which is we need to, and we have, um, a value proposition, um, that is competitive from a price standpoint, we continue to invest in upgrading our clubs. There's many stories throughout the portfolio of where we refreshed, you know, our value prop offering and invest in, invested in our clubs. So those are kind of more mechanical hygiene aspects of things. But then the real strategy becomes, you know, wherever you are around the continuum from, you know, you can achieve a healthier, happier um, lifestyle on your own to I can do it, but I'd like to engage in a community with access to fitness professionals, which could be group exercise, which is like a room of 20 or group training, which is like a room of six to 10 or personal training, which is one-on-one. -on -one. There's a long, there's a, there's a, you know, wide continuum around that, but your 24 hour fitness has all those offerings available. So, you know, depending on where you are, what you're looking to accomplish, and then how you want to accomplish it, we work diligently to be the brand that stands up above all. 
Was that also the biggest change in terms of strategy when you measure that versus uh, the pre-pandemic state? Well, I think that your pre-pandemic, you have, and I've been a member for 30 years. October 10th is actually, this year is actually my 30th year as a member. So I feel like I've worked here a lot. I hope you're still paying for your membership call. (laughs) What's that? I hope you're still paying for your membership call. (laughs) I am, but... My membership is from 1993, but I think that, um, I think that ultimately, you know, what, um, the team was doing before was they were really focused on growth and they had the capabilities to be able to focus on growth, um, 10 to 15 new clubs a year. And as we called our portfolio through, um, the bankruptcy process and we were fresh our existing portfolio, then we've really been focused on, you know, internal health and making sure that the experience of our existing clubs um, exceeds our members' expectations and our team members' expectations. And then we'll see our set ourselves on um, a growth trajectory once again. So, you know, I think it's just moments in time. Um, you know, I'm, I feel appreciative of all the leaders that led before me in 24 hour fitness, they're the ones that gave me, um, the backdrop by which to have the job that I have today. And, um, I think the moment that we're at right now is that we, uh, got healthy from the inside out and, um, and now we're starting to grow again. You know, most recently we've opened up, you know, two new clubs and, you know, I think we'll continue to expand as we move into Maybe as a short question, if if you can answer that, um, how do you think about this, you know, headlines that, hey, um, now you need to have the holistic health approach within gyms that should focus more on mental health and nutrition and sleep instead of just fitness. How do you think about these other headlines like decentralized fitness, the future of fitness um, with more people, you know, opting for a combination of home gyms, outdoor activities, less structured routines. How do you think about this headline? Hey, now you need to pack your gym with all kinds of different technology. I think that the short answer would be, um, if you really believe our mission statement, which I do, which is creating a healthier and happier world, you got to celebrate movement. So if people are getting it in, you got to be excited about it. What that means is that if you can go work out on the beach they, and run on the beach, that's awesome, you know, and um, for our business, not everybody lives on the beach and not everybody can run. And, you know, some people need access to different equipment, non-impact runners, access to fitness professionals, et cetera. So I think there'll always be enough business for us to be successful, but the core belief has to be that if you're getting your workout in, good for you. And, and, you know, it's a better life for you and all those that around you. So we got to celebrate movement. Uh, I'd love to continue on this question call, but we're running up on time. And um, I, I want to finish with uh, three quick questions just to get sure. your, you know, a top level thought on that in a, in a quick way. Um, number one, what does happiness mean for you? Oh, that's a great question. I think um, when I find myself the most happy is, um, you know, when I'm with my family and I um, after leading all week, 
um, take a secondary role. And, uh, you know, usually somewhere around Friday, I ask where we're going, what are we doing this weekend? And, I, and I'm happy to engage. So my happiest moments are uh, with my family for sure. It's so funny. Um, when you talk to a certain clientele, no, no, no one says it's with my Ferrari when I go clubbing. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, second question. Um, if you could live your life again, uh, what would you wish you would have fully understood at the age of 20? I tell you, uh, joint pain. <laughs> I wish that's not. I, um, I believe that many of the sports and the, um, you know, workouts that we did at a really young age, you know, I wish I knew, uh, then what I know now, and I try and pass that on, um, to the next generation. So, you know, there's a way to work out properly, um, to not only think about your life, you know, in your twenties, but think about your life in your fifties, sixties, and seventies. So, um, you know, there's a lot about health and fitness that I wish I, uh, I knew a long time ago. A hundred percent agree. Like there are some things that you've done in your twenties and thirties that really come back and, and bite you in the ass. Exactly right. Exactly right. Uh, last one. If there would be a surgical way, so no butterfly effect, which decision would you take differently in your life? That's a great question. I think that, you know, I would, I would have liked to uh, spend more time in the things that I was passionate about and, you know, versus the things that I thought got me the linear next step, you know? So I spent, spent a lot of time in jobs and retailers because I was trying to, you know, cheap kind of, you know, vertical ascendment. And I think I would have um, liked to have, I had a revert would be to spend more time on things that I was passionate about and um, more purpose-driven and less kind of, um, you know, uh, thinking about what the next job was as I moved. Where should listeners go if they want to learn more about you or 24-hour fitness or anything else that you're passionate about? It's very kind of you. We get an incredible amount of, you know, digital, you know, um, assets, 24-hour fitness, dot filler. You know, we got a, a world-class app. There's definitely ways to, to keep up with the brand. I, uh, I thank all of your listeners for their time. And um, we take all feedback about things that we're doing well, the ways that we can improve and you know, I, um, I'll continue to steward the company to the best of my ability. And I appreciate your time today. Fantastic call. I appreciate your time a lot. Uh, thanks for being here. You bet. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the show. I would love to get your comments, suggestions, and feedback. Also, if there's a special topic you would like me to address or someone specific you'd love to see on the show. If you want to support me, please hit the subscribe button and leave me a rating. I hope you will listen in again on the next show. Until then, all the best.